0: well, if I wasn't a woman of color, if I didn't have an accent if my name was different, would I have gotten a different treatment or would I have been just treated differently? I, I do think about that all the time, but um, I, I try not to allow that to overtake my energy. Without the thyroid, I already have very low energy that I gotta choose where I where use it. So. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Black Cancer, a podcast about the nuances of our lives as people of color told through our cancer journeys. I'm your host, Jody Ann Bury. On today's show, Angelica Garcia joins me to talk about self-advocacy as women of color and how sustaining that work needs to be for ourselves and for our families in the U.S. and abroad. Through her experiences, caring for her cousin's cancer journey in the U.S., her father's cancer journey in Colombia, and then her own years-old cancer scare coming back to haunt her right at the start of a pandemic. Where do we put our energy and focus as we navigate the challenges of our lives? How do we integrate our identities with our traumas? Here's my conversation with Angelica. Today's Inauguration Day. We have Madam Vice President, first Black woman, first South Asian woman, first woman of any race to even hold that role. And when you and I first met, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's because you were speaking at the Future For Us virtual Mm -hmm. conference that Sage Kiyomno had put on for women of color professionals. And I'm sitting here at my computer. It was an all day thing. So I'm in and out of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm coming in and I hear you speaking. And I'm like, yeah, this woman, she's amazing. She's so cool. She's, you know, giving really good content and advice. And at one point during that, you disclose that you're a cancer survivor. And I just stopped. Everything I was doing, I just stopped. Because I think it's important to me to see women of color doing incredible, amazing things that bring them joy that you know, fulfill their, their goals, their ambitions, whatever. And then when there are parts of them that are mapping onto other parts of who I am, it just hits me in a different way. And I'm feeling that today with, with Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. Madam Vice President Kamala Harris, let me respect mm-hmm. her. <laughs> and so as soon as that happened, I don't even know what you said after <laughs> that. <laughs> so, so there are like hundreds of people on this call mm-hmm. from all over the country mostly if not all women of color what made you want to share that story so publicly i don't know if this is what you were feeling but i heard a bit of a pause like a Mm -hmm. so i like i know she's about to drop something i didn't know what you're gonna drop but i could tell that you're about to share something really vulnerable and so i'm just curious like what drew you to share that story at that particular conference
0: It was exactly a month after I had my surgery. So it was very, very recent. Just knowing that it was a safe place for me just to bring exactly who I am. And cancer is part of who I am now, right? It's not something that is foreign to me. It's it's part of Angelica Garcia now. So I feel that having the platform for um, by women of color, right? Just being able to tell our stories the way they are, whether they are present or past, right? I think it was just like having that safe place allow me just to share with whoever was listening. And I remember the topic was more about demystifying, financial wellness, but it's like it, it goes back to the intersectionality that we all have, right? I mean, we as women of color just we just don't fit in one box. We are multidimensional. And and I think it was that part of saying my background and my experiences as um an immigrant and a mother and being single and being all these things. So now I'm in corporate America, but then in addition to that, i have dealing with this diagnosis that was so new to me, but I think that just allowing others to see me who I am allows them to connect if they have experiences that are just like mine or similar experiences or they know someone, right? because I feel that that's how we are really building our networks and that's how we Really are able to support each other. When I can say, "Yeah, I know Joriann, and this is her story." It's not just like I know the Joriann that I see on social media, but I know her. I I can tell who she is. So I think that's just just having that safe place is what really allowed me to do that.
1: I love that you said that around not just Jodian from social media, but I know her. And when you're in spaces where you get to actually know people, that improves your wellness, right? And they think that helps unlock these other parts of who you are. And so there's this concept around the eight dimensions of wellness, right? There are different aspects. So social, physical, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, environmental, occupational, financial. Mm -hmm. And so like, here are you talking about financial wellness And having kind of other parts of your wellness being met around this social part, this intellectual part, to be able to connect with other professionals who are also women of color in some ways can unlock, say, and then I'm also going to talk about my like physical health too, what's going on with my cancer story and how that's even impacting me emotionally. Like, let me give some space for that. And it was just this moment of realness that I really appreciated because sometimes when you're just like on the internet or people just see you as, you know, look at Angelica, she's like kicking ass in corporate America, right? Mm -hmm. Then this bubble of your occupational wellness keeps growing and growing and growing and maybe can compress other parts of you. Mm -hmm. And so being in those safe spaces, I feel like maybe can create some balance. I mean, I wish I did remember all the other stuff that you said, because financial wellness is very important to me, (laughs) but- after you dropped that, that just opened up so much. And I just felt so drawn to you. And I've never even met you before, before that. And I'm just like, so grateful to have you in my network and in my circle um, and to know you also more now.
0: I agree. Um, we can not just put in the face of, I am this title at this company. And then once my days. Is- Gone or over at work, then I'm gonna put in this other phase of this is why I'm with my kids. And then once I go outside or once I join a Zoom meeting, then I get to be the Latina or the other person. Like I, I just can't. It's just too much work mentally and physically. I just didn't have capacity. I don't. I still don't have the capacity to deal with all that. So it was really matter of this is me, right? Like. I just can't pretend to be someone I'm not and I can't just leave part of me outside at the door waiting for me for when I'm done, now I'm gonna come back, I'm gonna bring that and embrace it again, right? So I, I feel that it is important. And, and I, I do believe that, you know, maybe for someone what's important to hear about my experience as an immigrant and maybe for somebody else was important to hear about my experience in corporate America, and maybe for someone, what's important to hear, hey, she's a Latina, that she's also battling cancer, right? So I feel that as we shared our stories, it allows us to connect closer with people because what's important to you could not be as important for someone else. But if I never got to share that experience, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation today. We would never meet. We would legit never meet. I don't think it would happen. (laughs) Well, I
1: see like there is so much power in telling your story and like being yourself. Like, I feel like I can be myself around you. And it makes me believe my own experiences. It validates me and affirms me in a way that I don't get in a lot of other places. And I think when you're talking specifically about health issues, (laughs) particularly for women of color, To be believed is so important. That can change the trajectory of your health and your life outcomes. If someone who has an MD behind their name or someone in the healthcare field can just believe you. Mm -hmm. And so what did it mean for you in your own journey, the process with yourself and with your doctors and your your whole journey of just just being believed?
0: It was a long process because... I, it was about five years ago when I was first told, it looks like you have cancer. And it was actually the day before Thanksgiving when I received the phone call from my doctor. And this is just my primary care doctor, right? This is not not a specialist or any sort of, you know, other doctors I have seen at the moment. And she just called me and said that uh, um, the ultrasound that I've had showed the right side of my thyroid I could have cancer. Sadly, it was just a phone call. I was at work, there was not empathy whatsoever on, hey, you know, like, let me just bring you into the office. Let's just have this conversation. It was just like, Unfortunately, and this is these are her words. Unfortunately, it's the day before Thanksgiving, so uh, I know you're not gonna be able to go in and get the biopsy that you need, so you can actually be diagnosed. And uh, we just gotta wait. And and I will say that, oh my God, that's part of the the journey. That I felt that if I could make a difference in somebody's life, it's like I I want people to understand that you need to connect with people as individuals, not just in your profession, right? I, I, I appreciate doctors in, in a, and I have a lot of respect for them, but I feel that at the same time, we need to connect with people and, and give them diagnosis in a way that is more caring, is more, um, it shows a lot more empathy. And that's based on my experience. Maybe a lot of people have a different experience. Why me, why was done this way? I don't know, but I really wish that I would have just received a phone call for somebody and say, we just need to do some other testing and then really going to a, a diagnose but not really knowing was hard. I, I went through biopsies and then it came back um, benign. But as I said, that was several years ago. So back in, 2019, I did start having pain and I went back to the same doctor and I told her it again. And then at that moment, she did remember that she that we have gone through this process already. And I feel that at that time she had built a better relationship with me, and she was a lot more careful. Yeah. So it goes back that you can just have that relationship that you're the patient, you're the doctor, and then we're just going to move on into something else. I really believe that you have to build that relationship and it takes time um, because this time around was a better experience. It was still getting through being seen by different doctors, going through different testing, uh, a lot of uncertainty, not knowing that you know, the results will come back and they will be inconclusive. I will get a biopsy and it will come back un- inconclusive. I will get an ultrasound, it will get inconclusive. And then finally I was sent for genetic testing and it's still show inconclusive.
1: Oh my God. So at that point, are you like not even believing yourself?
0: Yeah, I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I, like I don't know at this <laughs> moment, but, but then at the same time I was like, I already went through this and they said, It was benign, so like nothing for me to worry about. So at that moment, it was actually the same day that at work we were told that was our last day in the office because of COVID. So we actually transitioned overnight from being in the office to now having to work from home. Yeah. At the same time, the hospitals were not doing procedures that they considered non-essential, right? It could only be, you know, somebody have to have a, I don't know, like a heart surgery or a brain surgery that those were the only procedures being done. Yep. They're like, oh, I'm sorry. Do you think
1: your biopsies are essential? Because they're not.
0: (laughs) No, it it looks like you have cancer, but that is not essential at the moment. You're going to have to wait in line. Like, no, that's very essential to me. I need. (laughs) we can just get like, can you just cut that side of my neck and move on, but it didn't it work like that for me.
1: So then how did you, you're navigating working from home, having your kids home, everything's different. COVID-19 is an unknown thing that's kind of taking over not just the country, but the world, right? You have family in other parts of the world that you have to think about and worry about. And then you're trying to figure out, like, do I have cancer inside of my body? Yeah. <laughs> What's tough for me is like... <laughs> I've been through that like go to doctor after doctor test after test and now you have these other barriers that could make it very easy to say I'll do with this in six months right but you're still getting tests like what was the driver behind continuing to pursue figuring out what was going on
0: just live experiences right my my dad died from cancer my cousin died from cancer I didn't want to be the next one. And I, and, and I get that medicine is advanced and the technology and everything, but what if it's something that needed to be taken care of? And I, it wasn't something that I was just going to put to rest and, and wait for a month or the, you know, a year for it to, to happen. I, I had to take ownership on that. It's my, it's my health. And at the end of the day, nobody else cares as much as I do. So I, I just had to do it. It's just one of those things, right? As a woman of color, you can just wait for things to happen to you. You you gotta make it happen.
1: That's so real. I cannot tell you how many reflections I've had in my journal when I was going through my own process saying, I'm so happy I'm Black. I'm so glad that I'm living life as an immigrant woman of color because that inherently put this drive to constantly push, Authorities, you know, Mm -hmm. push institutions. That is the legacy of our people. And if I wasn't pushing to do that, I wouldn't have gotten the diagnosis. I wouldn't have known what was happening to my body because, you know, every door I went and they're like, oh, we don't know. Oh, it might be fine. Oh, you're working out too much. Mm -hmm. And this inherent, not inherent, but like this learned skill, almost like it's still a trauma response, but this learned skill of believing myself over anything else, mm-hmm. which, I mean, I'm pretty sure that's how you're still in corporate America.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no, I I'm kick-ass. I i won't argue that at all. I, I believe we are raised in a way where we kind of have to prove ourselves to others all the time. So I think that it's just kind of part of who we are already we are wired this way, right? And then if we're immigrants, even more so, we, we're always constantly, day over day, having to prove others wrong, having to prove that what we're saying is, is a valid point. It's not something that I just made up in my mind. It's not just a, a pain that I decided to feel today and I'm just gonna pop Tylenols and Advils as, you know as many as I can. It's, it goes beyond that and, and yeah, I believe, but it's so funny because at the same time, it's like, well, if I wasn't a woman of color, if I didn't have an accent if my name was different, would I have gotten a different treatment or would I have been just treated differently? I, I do think about that all the time, but um, I, I try not to allow that to overtake my energy. Without the thyroid, I already have very low energy that I gotta choose where I where use this. So <laughs> that's not gonna be one of them.
1: Yeah, so the record will show that there, there is a question mark around the impact of bias in your healthcare and it'll just stay there as a question mark and we'll just keep on pressing on. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert, racism is present everywhere. <laughs> Xenophobia is present <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> and i mean yeah i mean i always carry that question would things have been different would i've been diagnosed sooner would i've gotten you know other care and then there are other questions too of if i didn't have you know institutional privileges as someone who's gone to college as someone who knows how to navigate mm-hmm. you know predominantly white spaces would that have been different for me right mm-hmm. was i kind of cashing in on privileges in my experience as much as I was also potentially experiencing bias. So it's just kind of murky space that
0: you can choose to put your energy there or you don't. I agree. It, and you, only you know what's right for you, right? Yeah. And and I believe education, I believe in technology, I believe on so many different things, but at the end of the day, Nobody but me will feel what I was feeling. Nobody will be able to experience what I was experiencing at the same time. And I feel that one of the things that really, I I take it as a learning experience is you have to learn to advocate for yourself because nobody else will, right? Or not to the extent that you do for the most part. So it, it is important to recognize that yes, there are weaknesses and there are strengths and we just gotta you know, take on the strengths and, and take on that privilege that we do, right? That we do have and um, fight for ourselves. I mean, and during COVID, that was, that was a fight. That was, that was tough.
1: So tell me more about that. Like how, how did COVID specifically impact your experience?
0: I would say the biggest impact was not having the moral support the way I wish I would have had. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my mom, my mom lives with us, and she's—I mean, she's my rock, right? My husband is the same, but like, we we will go to the appointments, and they couldn't come in. Um, so I will go to the doctor's appointment, and I will meet with the doctor. It will have to be a very quick appointment. They just didn't want to have, you know, physical contact with anybody. So appointments will be short and sweet. And then I will come home and then I will like relay all the information to my family. And they will be like, so do you ask XYZ? And I'll be like, no. And they were like, okay, what about this? I was like, no idea. I didn't think like none of these questions, like yeah. because like all this information was just turned on me without really, having the time to think through it and act on it and ask questions and and have like sound conversations, right? Like everything was, and I felt like everything just needed to happen. Like I I just couldn't wait. You need to have surgery? Okay, we're just gonna make it happen. I have to have surgery. I need to have this other treatment, let's let's just do it. And it, it took time to really take a pause and step back and be like, is this the right treatment? Am I making the right decision? But not having my family there was really difficult. And thanks to COVID, I couldn't, I just couldn't because nobody could have come with me into the doctor's office.
1: And like you need that moral support, but it's also tactical support too, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes things are so emotional for you. You don't even remember maybe questions you did wanna ask or you don't remember the answers to the questions that you you
0: did ask like that's oh, why you need backup mm-hmm. yeah i'll be like can i bring someone? can i record this can I, yeah. I facetime him because yeah i yeah like you said i i will not remember and i wouldn't remember because i in the moment i was present but i i just by the time i leave the office and i've been told you have cancer or then my process went from we removed two lymph nodes and they both have cancer and then the next appointment i'm told no, there were three. And I was like, no, like I know I have bad memory, but I was told there were two, (laughs) like from two to three. I think I can still remember that. And they were like, no, there were three. It's like always like constantly just like doubting myself too. But it it does, it does play a part having someone there with you to kind of help you navigate the process. And I do, I do feel it for every single person that was diagnosed last year or the ones that's still being diagnosed, but not, not being able just to have the model support there. I think it's extremely important for somebody that is having a cancer diagnosed.
1: Yeah, seriously. And especially when things can get so muddied in translation and, and muddied in kind of all the changes and stuff, because you had some issues too. Like you said, you You know, they said they removed two, but then it was three and all of that. So can you kind of walk us back through that, just your medical team's approach to what was happening and your expectations about what was happening? So I think when we had talked before, you shared that you didn't know that they were going to remove the whole thyroid, right?
0: No, it was interesting because the doctor said they have done the biopsy, they have done genetic testing. And it was only showing, which I still don't know. It was showing 50% chance of having cancer. Yeah. Which at that moment, the my endocrinologist said the only way to know for sure is removing the thyroid and just, you know, just send it in for the lab. Then she referred me to the surgeon. So I met with the surgeon and he said, we will go in, we will remove the right side. And we will actually send it to pathology right away while you're under anesthesia. That way, if it does show that it's cancer, we will just remove the whole thyroid. That way you don't have to then later come back and remove the other side. So that was the plan, right? So then, you know, as you and I know with COVID, all that got delayed. You know, I did hear from the doctor that because it was a cancer diagnosis that will put me on a priority list. Um, which I really don't know if they said that just to make me feel better or if that was true. But <laughs> after, after several phone calls, I finally got my appointment to go in for surgery. And then I went in and the doctor said, I've done this multiple times. Once we open you, I can tell if it's cancer or not, but I'm still going to send it to pathology. Yeah, And that's what they did. So I got into the surgery room. Um, that's, that's just like a weird feeling. Right? Oh my God. I don't <laughs> like to even talk about it. It's just weird. It gives me, uh, I don't know. There's something. There's something about that room.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, you know, in some spaces, I don't know what they do here in the US, but they call it the operating theater. Mm. And it feels like that. First of all, I—at least for me—I'm curious for you. The room was way bigger than I thought. Mm-hmm. There were way more people there than I expected. I'm like, "Who are you? I don't—I <laughs> don't know y'all." Yeah.
0: <laughs> Have we met
1: before? Exactly. Hi. Like, I felt like I should I introduce myself, or like, what's going on? <laughs> Which is not how that—that's not how surgery works, right? And everyone's just busy about, and—and and then soon after you get there, you're out. Yeah. Same they ask you to count to 10 and you never make it to 10.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't even remember being asked that. I was just like, Oh, what is all this about? It's cold. It's, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's cold. very bright. Um, like you said, there's a lot of people that like, I wish I knew, like, who are you? Like, what are you going to be doing to my body? Exactly. So, yeah. And, and I remember waking up right i think that after surgery they bring you to this other room where like i don't know like you recover from the anesthesia or something and i remember just being awakened by the nurse and then like she's just calling my name and this is probably the only thing that i remember i don't remember the count from 10 to 1 i'm so glad you do the brother Uh did that to me but you know that Part of the thyroid issues is that you kind of lose memory. So I, I do have oh, okay. I do have a good excuse. I don't have a thyroid. My memory <laughs> has decreased. You say that a lot. I do. I'm sorry. I, I forget I, your name. I don't I have a forget. thyroid. Sorry. I just don't have a thyroid, and that's why. <laughs> Not that I don't care, right? But <laughs> but I do remember the nurse waking me up, calling my name, and I'm asking, "What did they do to me?" Mm. Because I didn't need to ask, did I have cancer or not? I just needed to find out if they removed my whole thyroid. I did have cancer. <laughs> and she said, we remove your thyroid. And I was like, oh, and I remember just having that, like oh, that moment that mm. it's like disappointing. Like, I don't know. I don't know what it felt. I don't know if I was disappointed. I don't know if I was just glad that it was over with or just let me go back to sleep because I was sleeping so good. So you woke me up for this? Let me (laughs) I know truly like it's nothing I can do now. Okay, just just let me go back to sleep. And they brought me into the room, and then that's when the doctor said we removed the thyroid, we removed a couple of lymph nodes just as a precaution. That was said. Nothing else was said, and I remember very clear there were two. Mm -hmm. And my husband is a witness, so it's not just me. And then the following week, I had my my follow-up appointment and the the endocrinologist, not the surgeon, said, well, the good news is that you have the good cancer, which until this point, I don't know why they call it a good cancer. What is that? (laughs) I have the good cancer. And then the bad news is that three out of three had cancer. I was like three out of three but like three out of what? like the thyroid plus the two lymph nodes. No, she was like, no, the thyroid and three lymph nodes had cancer. I say, no, can you go back and check your notes? Because there were only two (laughs) and she did. It was a zoom meeting and she went back and she said, no, I can see on the biopsy and I can see everything. There were three lymph nodes. They all had cancer. Um, so we just need to follow up with our treatment later on. And that's, that's how it all went. It went from like it was a good cancer. It was supposed to be a cancer that it, it takes a very, very long time for it to spread, but because it had been in my body for so long, it had already spread. It had spread to the three lymph nodes. So I, I went for a second opinion. I, um, I started seeing a different doctor who spent a lot of time with me and understanding well, what was important to me, not only to what the test results were showing but how I was feeling which I believe it was a lot more important and just put a plan, a plan in place this is this is what we need to do here are the options and you can think about it you can talk through it with your family and then you can call me whenever you're ready it was it was never that you have to make the decision now which I, I really much appreciate having that because um, as I said with not being able to have your support system there for you, uh, just giving the opportunity to process all the information and, and understand this is like Sonia to me. It was, it was a better approach than just being like, okay, this is what we're doing and let's just go ahead and schedule it.
1: That's wild. So you essentially received your diagnosis when you woke up and they told you that they took it out. hmm And then to hear that it wasn't just there, it spread. Like, what what did that do to you mentally, emotionally to know that this thing that you had been trying to get sorted out, inconclusive tests, in and out in the context of
0: COVID had spread? That's been the biggest challenge for me. Um, Mm. Just knowing that it, it was something that wasn't supposed to be spread, but it had. And at the moment they were three lymph nodes and not knowing were there any other lymph nodes that were compromised, they perhaps they didn't know. I think that's always been the question for me. So when I went back six months later and received my next ultrasound, they actually showed that on the other side there were lymph nodes also that showed that could have cancer, which prompted a second treatment, which was the the radiation therapy. It's always in the back of my mind that it's just never gonna be over. I feel like mm. it's kind of like always it's gonna be dead. it's kind of just like hiding somewhere and and then if one day it's just gonna like come at you and like scare you again yeah. um, i I believe that and maybe other cancers are different but I do believe that it's just it's just really hard to put this to rest I believe that is it's always there in your mind it's always kind of like I'm looking forward to my six months review because I want to see if it's really gone I want to make sure that it's not, that it hasn't come back it's it's yeah it's really hard to just kind of like as I said just like take that part of your story and put it aside and don't think about it I I just believe that that's kind of those things where you just gotta embrace it and know that it it could be there right now as you and I speak, I can probably still have it. And I I really don't know because that's what it showed back in October. And it won't be until June when I get to find out if I'm cleared or not. So it, it is always there. I try not to spend my energy on thinking too much about it. I've done my part, right? I went through the surgery, surgeries there were two i've gone through the other treatment i i've done what i think i can do what's under my control and under my control is make sure that my mind doesn't focus so much on the fact of the what if because then um, it will definitely consume me oh yeah
1: Yeah. You know, in the first episode for the podcast, Shayla and I, we both went to Sloan Kettering in New York and we were joking about how since our diagnoses, we have never not had an appointment at Sloan Kettering. (laughs) Right. And I think it can come off as I always have to see the doctors and it's not a burden. I didn't realize how much I was depending on it because when COVID delayed my annual scan, Mm-hmm. And delayed it by just a couple months from March to June. From March to June, my whole body was so inflamed. I spent more time March to June looking up cancer symptoms than I did like the previous months or double that, you know, mm-hmm. prior, prior to that. And I was so anxious. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if it came back? What if this And it consumes me. I couldn't sleep. I've like chronic insomnia because since my diagnosis and my insomnia was flaring, it was so distressing. And so I get into the hospital, I'm sitting there talking to my surgeon and I'm like taking a breath. And he goes, so I got your scans. I'm like, and he's like, you're fine. Everything <laughs> looks great, and, and I just and then I started crying because mm-hmm. I didn't realize how much I was holding mm-hmm. in. And I really look forward to my appointments because, like you said, you reach a point where you have to advocate for yourself so much. So you're driving this. You're driving. You're driving everything. Yeah. And then at a certain point, you're not. I kind of use my recurring appointments as the thing that allows me to rest a little bit.
0: I did the same. I, oh my gosh, I don't <laughs> know how many hours I spent online researching thyroid cancer or all these, you know, like the lab test. I was like, I don't understand any of this. So I will like look up like my, the range and my number and what does that mean? I'm just like trying to put all the pieces together so I can, be as informed as possible right because you don't go into the doctor's office and they say okay this is your type of cancer here is you know the prognosis or here is you know some of the factors that influence your like you don't go into any of that you just go in and they say you have cancer and here is the treatment that we have for that that's it yeah it's up yeah. to you to like learn everything else. It's like, yes, I don't have time to go and do all that, but then I have to I have to make the time, right? Because then yeah, and like you said, it just consumes your time and energy. I spend hours just <laughs> laying on the couch looking at the iPad trying to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> and now I know all the different thyroid cancers. Now I understand what they call it a good cancer. Now I know how many stages they are. Now I know the treatments. But it's like It's taken a year almost for me to get to that point. And then I look back and it's like, I just spent so many hours doing all that. And I wish I could have had that time to, I don't know, read a book, listen to a podcast, just like do something fun. But then instead I was just reading and learning about cancer. It was like, yeah, really? Yeah. Your whole wellness chart gets out of whack
1: because you have to put a lot of energy towards just a few buckets. How did you balance all of that and do your job? Like corporate America is not for the faint of heart.
0: (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I don't know how I did. I don't know. I, I don't know. It was hard. It was really hard because the, the surgeon and, and it goes back to that relationship and being able to listen. But I remember the, the surgeon said, Oh, no worries. Like, you can get back to work in like a couple of days, you'll be fine. And I listened to him, right? Like, I was like, Okay, he told me I can go back. And I had my surgery, I believe, like on a Wednesday. And then by Monday, I was working. And then my manager sees me online and she's like, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know. I was still like your work. And then she's like, you just have like a major surgery. Like you're working. I was like, I feel fine. But I think, I think I felt fine because I was at home. So it it really didn't feel like working, right? It was part of that whole, yeah, you know, work from home and being with the COVID and everything else going on. It quite didn't feel like I'm just like working so much because I was, you know, logging. I'm at home anyway so minus what work. yeah uh, it was a bad mistake oh it was so bad i i i wish i listened to my manager it was bad because my my doctor never asked me what i do for a living and i wait exactly <laughs> because then he wouldn't understand i'm on, i'm on conference calls all day long which i got to a point where i would be in tears talking because i had to put so much effort because my vocal cords were, you know, not, not damaged, but they were impacted by the surgery.
1: Yeah. And my
0: hormones obviously were just like whacked out of my surgery. Mm.
1: And I'm still
0: getting used to all these different things. Like everything was a long process. And I just didn't give myself and my body the time to heal. I rushed through it. And I did that because it was kind of like the expectation that don't worry, you can get back to work like yeah. right away without really understanding, like, what does work mean to me? And it was, it was a big mistake. And, and it actually led into a second surgery because I was putting so much pressure talking. Like, towards the end of the day, I will lose my voice. I will, mm-hmm. I will have times where I couldn't even talk. And it was very frustrating for me because my voice was, I felt the only thing that I had to support my team being able to talk to them, being able to give them encouragement and not having that was hard. It it kind of reflected on my dad's experience where he had a cancer where he couldn't talk anymore. And I was like afraid that this was gonna be long-term for me, not really knowing what was causing it. And, you know, it caused infections and I went through all different antibiotics and I had to have a second surgery. And all this only prolonged my recovery as opposed to like giving myself the time that I needed and just heal, like give myself two weeks, heal, and then get back to it. It was kind of like just pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. But once again, for us, it's so we're so used to that, right? We're so used to always having to push more and more until like we get to like a breaking point. And I felt that I, I I got to that point. I got to like a breaking point where it was like, I really got to understand and I got to listen to my body first, not only the needs of my job, because my job, I'm, I'm often reminded if I'm not at my job one day, they will continue functioning. Oh yeah,
1: the business will will keep going. <laughs>
0: they will be fine. I have to tell myself that sometimes. So yeah. I I don't know how I did it, but I think that we are just, we're just so used to doing that. I feel like as women of color,
1: we're so used to advocating for ourselves that we don't advocate for ourselves, mm-hmm. us, our personhood, yeah. what mm-hmm. we need. Like on a visceral level, No, on a way that sometimes what we need goes counter to other people's expectations of us. Our expectations of ourselves to just kind of settle in of what do you need, Angelica? What do you need?
0: Right. Hi. Uh, yes, a lot. I like you. You just said it beautifully. I. We're so used to advocating and fighting, but at the same time, we don't take the time to recognize what we need as individuals and to, really set that up priority. I think that we tend to put everything and everyone else on the top of the list and, and we slowly start becoming the bottom right we we don't focus on what we need mentally physically emotionally and on the emotional piece of dealing with cancer it really goes hand in hand with how well you're gonna react to your treatment right i, I felt that if you are emotionally and mentally able to deal with everything like it doesn't matter if it's chemo radiation surgery it's not gonna have the best outcome but we're not used to that we're not used to saying here are my priorities here is what i need even to be able to vocalize that like i don't think i can articulate to you like if you ask me that question i don't think that i can say here is what i need because I just tend not to put myself as a priority. Oh yeah, it's just like, uh, yeah. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I'm not fine, I'm not <laughs> fine. And yeah. but we're so used to being, oh, I'm good, I'm fine. It's like, no, let's like, how are you really feeling?
1: I think when I do little things to avoid the question, like people message me, say, how are you doing? I'll just text back, you know, we out here. <laughs> And then we move on with the conversation. You know okay. we all out here. Just, yeah. Because am I fine? Do you see what's <laughs> happening in the world? <laughs> like, like, what's happening in the world? What's happening with my body? What's happening? No, I'm not fine. I'm never fine.
0: I'm never fine. <laughs> I'm never fine. <laughs> but see, I feel that we don't do that because then we're going to be perceived as we're not grateful enough. We're going to be perceived as we're just complaining. We're going to be perceived as um, others have it worse than you do, right? I feel that there is just so many things that we're so afraid of to sometimes being judged by the way that we truly respond to our feelings that we tend to just hold them back, right? Because, and and I say this yeah, and I mean it because like you said at the beginning, most of my family are in Colombia, right? So if you ask me how I'm doing and you ask them how I'm doing, like, oh my gosh, I have cancer and I'm I'm working 50, 60 hours a a week. So I I feel that it's just so important to to really recognize that, like, what does that mean? Like when somebody asks me, like, how do you feel? Like, what does that really mean? Like, how do I feel when I only looking at myself as a person? Then I can tell you exactly how I'm feeling. I'm struggling with this. I'm having a hard time with that. Um, I feel like I need help here. Like, if I can have that, I feel that we become more sincere and we can better help others than we're always saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Because then I feel that you're not opening the doors for others to really tell you how they feel. That's like, if you're always telling me you're feeling good, then I'm going to be like, I want to tell you all the bad things that I'm dealing with, because then I feel like I'm dealing with all this and you're good. And I think
1: sometimes too, we have this anticipation that people are going to treat us a certain way if we start telling the truths about our experiences. But if it was someone else, we wouldn't react that way. Like we are fearing Mm -hmm. judgment that we don't judge other people in that sense. And so I'm curious for you, because as you said, this wasn't your first time dealing with cancer in an intimate way. Can you share more about what it was like for you when you were supporting your cousin with their journey, you know, here Mm -hmm. in Seattle? Um,
0: Yeah, so I, um, my cousin was up here in Seattle and my family, so my mom, my brother and I were down in Florida. And when we found out she had cancer, my mom decided to just leave everything and move up here so she can help her her husband, her newborn son, and and be there for them, right? And then eventually, I don't know, part of who we are as a culture, we are very family-oriented. I decided to do the same. So I moved from Florida to Seattle, and I've often get this question like why do you move and I I don't go into so much detail because it's so personal, but that's the reason why we move. I mean I love Florida, I love the weather. It's so close to Colombia. Mm-hmm. I love the food. I love everything about it. But family has to come first for me. So we we did that yeah. and I was able to see her just fight like literally fight day over day have to go every two weeks, receive treatment. She will go in, she'll be hooked up to this like little machine where they pump all the chemo, come home, stay with that for like three days, then go back to the hospital. And then her side effects will last three, four days. She may have a week where she's feeling better and then back at it. And you go through this week over week and kind of just, it becomes the normal for you so I, I saw that and I saw her fighting for so long that when I was diagnosed it was like what I was what I was dealing with was nothing close to what she was dealing with so I was like you just gotta power through it like you know this is nothing Angelica this is nothing compared to what your cousin went through so so it, it was I I don't know like I I don't believe in a lot of things but I would say that it definitely prepared me for that. Why, I don't know, right, part of life, but it definitely helped me be better prepared to how to deal with it. Um, but it was, it was really hard to see her die and she died at a very young age, but um, she fought for, for years as a stage four cancer patient and, and even her oncologist says that he's never seen somebody with the type of cancer she had at this stage she had to be alive for so long yeah
1: Mm. how did that impact you to be so close to her
0: in that process (laughs) we were we were very close in age we were only two years apart and um we we live like i I literally moved like five minutes away from her house right Mm -hmm. and i will come over to her house all the time I will, whenever I could, I will be the one driving her to get chemo. And I remember, you know, always the first day you have to go in and you have to you know, get your, your lab test and wait for your white cells results before they decide if they're gonna do treatment that day. And there were multiple times where we were just sitting in the waiting room and she would be like, let's just skip chemo today. Let's just go and do, and then it would be like skipping school. I'll be like, no, like, what if mom finds out? <laughs> like, no, I don't want to get in trouble with my mom. Maybe, let's just skip chemo
1: today. <laughs> let's, let's go to amusement
0: park. <laughs> yeah. And she will have those thoughts, but we, I will have to remind her, this is what's keeping you alive, right? Yeah. We let's, let's skip chemo. And then what it's going to impact whatever, you know, many more months this is bringing back to you. So no, we're not speaking on. We're staying here. We're gonna do this together. So um it was hard. Yeah. It was hard. But but she was a fighter. Yeah. So no. Yeah. I, I was I was happy to be there for her and with her. That's
1: what, it, kind of goes back to what you're saying about having that social support and how critical mm-hmm. it is. It is so yeah. important to just have yeah. a person to just have those moments with you, you know, Mm -hmm. um, to kind of keep you going and and keep you present and excited to be doing this, you know, to be fighting for your life. And so she was here. How was your journey with your father's cancer who was in Columbia, right? Oh, yeah,
0: that's, that was really difficult. Um, because it was in the summer of I believe it was 2013 I may got the, the year wrong but I remember being um here and then I received a phone call from one of my aunties down in Colombia saying that he was sick but I was kind of used to him being sick he just really never took great care of himself for many years after I left Colombia he just kind of was out there and he he drank a lot. He didn't have good eating habits and I can go on and on. So I really didn't pay a lot of attention when she said he's sick, it's kind of like, yeah, like, oh, he just got a cold and now he's complaining about it. And then she was, no, like he is sick, mm-hmm. like very sick to the point where they said he just can't talk and he will call me like all the time. He will call me at least once a week, just check in. If I was at work and I couldn't answer, he would just leave me a voicemail. Hey, it's me just calling. How are you doing? And whatever it was, I will get a phone call from him. And yeah, it is true. I, I had not gotten a call from him and they said he just can't talk. And I was like, what do you mean he can't talk? Like who can't talk? So they said, I, we don't know. And he then um, he went to see the doctor. And then at the same time, I decided it was time to go back to Colombia, and I had not gone back to Colombia since I had moved to the state. So it, it was a hard decision. I I wasn't planning on going to Colombia at that time, and I got there. It was a surprise. We didn't tell him he, I was going mm-hmm. um, because we knew he was going to be very emotional. Um, but I got there, and my cousin, who is uh, very close to her, she took me to the place where he was staying at. And he was laying on a bed and he had lost, oh, so much weight. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could not have recognized him and his face had changed. Everything about him had changed. So I just, he was laying down. I sat next to him and I just like slowly walking up. And when he saw me, he was in shock and he just started crying Mm. and um just looking for a little he will just be around with this little notepad that he had put together from the scrap papers and he started looking for the notepad to start writing down what he was feeling and then he's like what are you doing here why are you here and then we started taking him to different doctors they said he had cancer it was on his tongue so his tongue had actually got stuck to the top of his mouth. That's why he couldn't talk. Mm. So he couldn't talk. He couldn't eat. That's why he was losing so much weight. We found the best doctor we could at the time. And they just said, we just got to have surgery. We got to remove the bottom left side of your jaw. and We got to put in a feeding tube and a breathing tube. And that's what they did and he was diagnosed um i think it was like Mm. july six months later january he died i can tell you that having gone through the cancer treatment with my cousin here in the states and having to have my dad go through that in colombia it's night and day Mm. I i mean i I will have to go outside the hospital, buy the morphine, come back, bring it, so and then chase the nurse down so they will give it to him. I will have to sleep on the floor next to him because there were no like beds where you can be at. So I will just lay a like cardboard on the floor and be next to him. I will have to beg people to fit him. I will have to be the one buying the type of food that he needed because the, the, the healthcare system there will not provide it. I mean, you fight for everything. So as I said, right, like it's, it's really easy for me to put things into perspective just because the situation with my dad was just extremely difficult to see how, you know, you're treated when you are in a country like Colombia and how you're treated when you are in the United States. Um, so all that definitely helped me have a better perspective about my own diagnosis and and how lucky I was to be here and to have the, the medical system and to work for a company that at least I didn't have to worry about not having money to pay for medical bills that are so crazy high.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like there are still a lot of privileges that we hold in a number of different ways that can change the trajectory of our lives, of our health mm-hmm. outcomes of, you know, these situations that we go through. And so I feel like having that perspective, having the type of support that you have and having the ability to advocate for yourself. Even with the other privileges that we hold, there's so much that we have in our toolbox to support Ourselves, our selves, mm-hmm. our persons, as well as supporting our community. You know, there's a lot of a lot that we bring to the table for sure.
0: Yes, and I I think um, some of the challenges when I look back into my own um, journey was having English as a second language was just another obstacle that I had to face. Right, so you add the fact that I couldn't bring somebody with me. And then I'm having to look for the right words to be able to explain what I'm feeling. And we went through that so many times. And then I'd be like coached by my like husband. He'll be like, no, let's rehearse this again because it's not a short road. Cause I will call the doctors and I'll be, I have so much short road and they'll be like, have you been tested for coronavirus? And I'll be like, it's not COVID. <laughs> i just had a major surgery and then i it will it will be because i wasn't choosing the right words it was not a surgery yeah it was my neck yeah and little things like that make a huge difference
1: oh yeah especially when you're trying to describe pain or describe symptoms you have to be precise (laughs) because these people are not in your body no
0: and then they will be like is it a dull pain? Is it a sharp pain? Is it, I was like, it's pain. Like, what part do you get of that? So. Did you not hear me? I just said it's, it's pain. pain. <laughs> I was like, how difficult can this be? It was like, it's just this simple. It's just pain. Pain, like, I told you I'm, that. <laughs> I'm taking Tylenol, I'm taking Advil. That tells you right there, I have pain. And when I take it, it helps me. I just I just got my maximum. I just can't take anymore. And they will be like, well, let's go ahead and send you here. And I'll be like, no, like they, I keep being sent from like place to place, nurse to nurse, doctor to doctor, specialist to like, find out what's going on, but it was because I couldn't really express myself Yeah. what's happening with me in my body. Um, yes, like you said, right, like being able to advocate for yourself. But then now I look back and I think about like, what did I learn is that I, I learned that it's so important to have a system where people with different backgrounds whose English is not their first language can have a better way to communicate, right? I'm not saying this has to be for people who speak Spanish or people who speak, it, it doesn't matter. If you, if you don't speak English as your first language, it's gonna be just another issue for you. And that's just the way it goes. That is really important. I think particularly in a place like
1: Seattle, first of all, I don't see a lot of Latinx folks around here. No, definitely not as much as New York where I'm from and definitely not as much as, you know, a lot of parts of Florida. Mm -hmm. And so to just be able to communicate easily is so important. So when I was at Sloan Kettering, there were a lot of Caribbean people, a lot of Jamaican people around, and that just made it so much easier to just Mm -hmm. be there and to express myself and to people to understand that even if I say something that's a little more extreme, they know yeah it's
0: not it's cultural <laughs> it's <really> extra yeah <laughs> I agree it's so different like we just have a different way about us right
1: yes oh my gosh this woman she came and she's like I'm here to take your blood pressure I'm like I don't want you to take my blood pressure and she's like all right and then she kept doing it and so as she's like forcing <laughs> to take my blood pressure I'm like why do you always win? Or I said, I said more in like a Pottswood tone Mm -hmm. of like, you know, why always win me? And she was like, I win every day. (laughs) So I think it's important, like culturally to have those moments of levity and to be understood and to have that feeling of belonging. But it's also important to be able to direct your healthcare providers. So they understand exactly what you need and understand you know how they can
0: support you I agree I agree and like you said you know there are things that that we say that can be taken in the wrong way and we don't mean it that way we're we're joking we're playing we're you know we we may say things that they just have a complete different meaning to us it can just come out wrong when you're on the other end and I do like I'm I'm very like I wouldn't say like I like like to touch people but like I like to hug and I like to like Mm -hmm. oh like you want to be like oh my gosh you're so good and and then on the other hand like my doctors were like very professional very like and I'm like like I get it but it's like and and I'll be like very personal and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful. No, 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 no. And they'll be like, oh yes, is this didn't. And I'll be like, oh, like, oh, can you just like turn it down a little bit for me?
1: Yeah, it's like I'm dealing with some of the worst experiences in my life. I need to feel like I'm talking to a person.
0: Yeah, <laughs> we do that, but it's okay. <laughs> we're, we're learning.
1: I talk a lot about, you know, being a, a lay person, trying to express to a medical person the level of urgency or severity of whatever I'm dealing with and that already being a challenge. And so then when you're translating from different languages those nuances and some of the word choices might not get through. Um, So I think there's like kind of word choices and expressions and how can that translate to a doctor but then also there might be some physicians or care teams maybe they don't have a high tolerance of listening to people who have accents to them like right mm-hmm. or the way their way of speaking English is different from their own and that can impact care you know or how they perceive you just their own inability and limited skills to be able to engage with people who sound differently than they are
0: absolutely a hundred percent and then add the fact that during my diagnosis so last year some of the appointments had to be virtual right so you are not able to really be that in person like i i speak with like you can see me but i speak with my hands like all the time i can just be mm-hmm. like talking and not moving my like i'm always doing this yeah <laughs> yeah how can i tell my doctor all these things when i can't be that in person and like express all these things because it's just not my voice this is like i just like to move and and like you said not not everybody can understand that. Not everybody has been exposed to all the different cultures to be able to recognize that, you know, although we are all Latinos or Latinas, Mm -hmm. we come from different countries, we come from different backgrounds. And what, what means one thing for me as Colombian can be very different to a Puerto Rican or to a Cuban or to somebody from Mexico, right? Just like here, right? Like, if you're here, but you're from New York, it could be very different than if you're from the Midwest. It's all its all about being able to connect with people and really intentionally listen to people. And I think that that's the piece where like, we all can do better, right? It's like, and I felt that that was one of the things that I guess it was good when I, I lost <laughs> my voice because of the surgery mm-hmm. is that like, I had to like listen better because I couldn't talk so much. So I really had to just like learn to listen a lot better to people and really pick on all those things that sometimes are not words that people can express, but are emotions or faces or that they're making and pick up on that. And I'll be like, Hey, well, you just did this, or you just said that, like, tell me more about it. Because as I said, with mine, it was kind of like I'm trying to describe over the phone than having this pain, but then yet I can't, I just can't, you know, show you over the phone uh, to the person on the other line, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It, it was challenging and and definitely that continues to be a challenge, right? We haven't find a solution for that, but it's something that as I think of you know our society in general, we can we can all find. <laughs> common ground on on different ways to get better at it so
1: in addition to improving your skills around listening and doing that deep listening like my mom she always says this is when I was growing up and was a little you know it wasn't the best right <laughs> <laughs> she would say something reprimanding me and I'm like I hear you I hear you you know and then she goes do you hear me or are you listening mm-hmm And that nuance of that difference of thinking about listening, what does it mean to listen to someone, like actually listening? And that work of listening can not only get people closer to each other and getting that support that we've been talking about, but also can help save someone's life. Like, are you listening to people? So as we think about listening, are there any other tools of life you say Mm -hmm. you think you've picked up from navigating how cancer has impacted your family and how cancer has impacted your own self?
0: Uh, Yes, I will say I'm always very, or I try to be very positive and optimistic, right? I I just try to do that because life has not been easy for me. So if I just allow myself to always be on the other side of the spectrum, I will remain there, right? So I'm Mm -hmm. always looking for what's the bright side how we going to overcome this, what's the good in it. Being diagnosed with cancer was something that I, I just never thought that it would be me. I have seen it and I experienced it so close with my cousin and with my dad, but it wasn't me. Yeah. Right. So being able to recognize that it could be you at any time. Oh yeah, right. And and now now is this, but tomorrow can be something worse. I think that helped me just appreciate every day. And I'm like, I really mean this. I think that every day you just gotta recognize and appreciate why you have, and really understand that it can always be worse, right? And I I was very very focused on on my career as a professional and i think that you know obviously as i said at the beginning as an immigrant i i want to leave a legacy behind and to me my legacy was i succeeded in corporate america i'm opening the doors for other women of color i'm i'm showing my daughter the path that you know if i can do it you can do it right she was born here but like if i had to go through all these challenges and i'm able to do it like look at you you can do 10 times better, 20 times better than mommy can. Um, but then having cancer really helped me like, look back and think, what's really like my purpose here? It should not be just career oriented. It should not be just, you know, like I'm making it up. You know, I'm, I'm succeeding here in, in my company. It's gotta really be like, why I am succeeding here. And I think that, as I said, like just having those moments where like, I really needed to like find for things to be grateful for and for things to be uh, optimistic. It was really finding what is your purpose. And I can say that I can articulate, you know, beautiful, you know, this like sentence about oh, Angelica's purpose in life is this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do believe that really knowing it's not about me, it's just greater than me. And is knowing about the impact that you can make in someone's life, like you said, right? You you can be making an impact. What it's like life or death, right? If you took the time to listen to somebody instead of just like hear what they have to say, yeah, it can make a difference in their life or the actions that they can take. Just just knowing that no matter who you are, what position you hold in a company, how many followers you have in Instagram how many mm-hmm. tweeters? You, I mean, all these things, it, it's not just about all that. It's just like, if you can make change and impact people's lives, and it doesn't have to be huge. If you do like one thing at a time, one person at a time, I feel that we can make a difference. And I, I do, I do believe that just having to go through the procedures and diagnose and, and You know, I still have to be at home and put a smile on my face because I didn't want my kids to, you know, see me crying or see me struggling with it, but just to show them that this is not the end, like we're going to make it through this together no matter what. It it just shows us that there is is a purpose for us to be here. And it's not always because I want a better house or a nicer car. Mm Mm-hmm. it's it's way it goes way beyond that and every day I just try to find out right like how what's my purpose what can I do today what did I do today that brought me happiness or that I was able to bring happiness somebody else and hopefully brighten somebody's day I think that cancer helped me with that
1: yeah and the sense of you know this idea of it can always be worse I think it can sound maybe invalidating to the parts of your experience that do suck. Mm -hmm. But the way to interpret that, I think, is that there's always hope. There's always hope, like, regardless of your situation. And trust me, I have been Mm -hmm. in the darkness. (laughs) (laughs) And people are like, there's always hope. (laughs) Fuck you. Right? (laughs) Right. right but to be on the other side of that darkness it's just like slowly I'm just like oh okay Mm -hmm. you know I had I had some options in some type of way to think about my personhood thinking think about who I am think about the impact that I want to make who's Mm -hmm. around me what are my nieces going to think about this you know and just kind of kind of get those wheels turning around there are ways that I can support myself where I can continue to support other people. There are ways that I can advocate for others that I can turn into advocacy for myself. Mm -hmm. There's still a place for me on this earth to do something. I think sometimes after we go through trauma and then we go through all the darkness, (laughs) because that's always always there I think at some point, then you can start getting really focused on your
0: purpose. It's never been all bright and happiness and and all these great things, right? I had many moments where I just, yeah, I just wanted to cry and feel bad and feel sorry and 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 look for more ways to just just like forget about all the things. And there were many times where I just wanted to talk to somebody that would just validate how I'm feeling, not just tell me, mm-hmm. "Oh, it's gonna be better." I just wanted to hear from somebody to say it does suck it's it, it mm-hmm. sucks that you're dealing with this like I there yes. were many times that I just needed to have that conversation and once I had it it was like oh I feel better yeah or like oh that that really helped yeah it's not like always just looking for somebody to be like you got this it's gonna be no sometimes you just need to How's uh-huh. that person that is like, man, it, like, I'm so sorry you're dealing with that. And I know that a lot of people don't want to do that yeah, because they, they don't want to make you feel like you have to be sorry for yourself. But that's needed. yeah, That's so needed. That is so needed. There were so many times where like, you all be just like, oh, who had texted me lately that says something that yeah. I know that person <laughs> would say that to me. And I needed that. It does not. You start scrolling through yeah. people's like, who's gonna give me the real yeah. right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you need that. It's it's part of the process. It's not yeah, it's not gonna be all great and, and happiness and and easy. It's difficult. It's it's a lot more difficult than than what you and I can say here, right?
1: Yeah. Going
0: through it is extremely challenging, but uh, it's just finding all those moments, the good ones and the bad ones. And like, yeah, at the end of the day, it
1: sucks mm-hmm. and you're still here. Yeah. Like we're still out here. Mm-hmm. You know
0: what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And as I said, so, like, I look back and it's like, oh man, I wish I used all those hours that I was on the internet looking for like what does thyroid cancer mean to just like do something else, go outside and like enjoy life with my kids. There were many times yeah. where like, we'll be like writing in the car and like my mind is just like elsewhere. Like I wasn't present. And it's because like it occupied my mind the fact that I had cancer, that I didn't know how long it was gonna last, that I didn't know, you know, has it spread, has not spread, is there another treatment? Like what else? Like that is always this what if. But then at the same time, it's like, well, I kind of like wasted all that time because like now that time is gone, right? Like I look back at my last summer it's like, oh my gosh, like, yeah, there were so many days where like, I could have been just enjoying myself, but then instead I was in this mindset, but it was, it's okay. I don't regret being in in that mindset, that darkness,
1: (laughs) (laughs) the darkness. It's just like, that's what you need at the time. And, you know, it seems like now you're in a different place. I was chatting with someone today about like sleep hygiene and sleep management. Cause yeah, I'm like, oh shit, I'm think I'm still suffering with insomnia um but I fill that time with work because I work because I don't want to be searching cancer symptoms so I do things that I don't have to feel bad about like oh I was working I was up late working instead of like I was up late researching cancer (laughs) shit right and so she was like if you're gonna be up then fill that time with something fun and it never occurred to me like oh I'm a I'm I can't go to sleep because I'm scared that I'm going to be thinking about this thing. Mm -hmm. Instead of firing off emails at three o'clock in the morning, I could work on my adult coloring book.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) You know, I could be doing so many other things. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, how do we support ourselves? How do we give ourselves what we need and manage that stress? Like even from the very beginning, right? When you said, I choose not to put my energy there. We still have agency. And so even things suck. I feel like, you know, both of us are still trying to find our way towards making choices about Mm -hmm. how we want to spend our energy, how we want to spend our time, what do we want to do with that time? And I think as long as, you know, we're here, I think that'll just be a part of us, or at least say, I still think it's a part of me Mm -hmm. as much as like the cancer and that all that trauma is a part of me. So are the lessons and the new agency and choices that I know that I have now, that's also a part of me.
0: Exactly. It's, it's, it has become part of who you are, right? It's not your end and cancer. No, now that, that's part of who you are. And now obviously it's easier to recognize the learnings from it. It's very difficult to recognize while you are in the middle of it.
1: Oh yeah. Don't even try.
0: Yeah. But like now <laughs> it's a lot easier to even talk about it. Right. Like at the beginning, like every time I will, I will say I have cancer, like my voice will break down and I'll start crying. I'll have to like take a pause and then I'll have to like say it again. Like now I can all be like, yeah, I have cancer. And then it's not like I'm saying it's not a big deal, but it has yeah. become, part of who I am. And as, as you said, it's just being able to make the choices. And it's, yeah. it's not easy, but you have to do it, right? You have to find the choices that are better for you. So how do I choose to spend my time, my energy, whether it is it that I want to get back and, you know, read more about, you know, what's next after the thyroid cancer, or, or do I want to go back and listen to a podcast that is going to make me feel better, right? Because I can tell you that if I choose the first one, I will stay there and I will stay in the darkness and it will be hard to like mentally get myself out of it. But we do, we are here. We have a reason why we're still here. And I do believe that sharing the stories are definitely going to help others. Whether it's just one or many, right? Right. If Mm -hmm. we can help one more person, I feel that that by itself, it it fits some of that purpose that we're here for. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. Yeah. That's what we're doing today.
1: Black Cancer is created, edited, and produced by me, Jodi and Theory. Thank you so much, Angelica, for sharing your story with us. To make sure that other Black Cancer stories become center to how we talk about cancer, do all the internet things, DM, email, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Check out our website at blackcancer.co and on Instagram at underscore black underscore cancer. Trauma comes with endless wisdom for ourselves and those around
0: us. Tell someone you know about Black Cancer.